Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic, Episode 1.12, Battle Space. I'm Kelsey, running the show solo this time, and there's always a little bit of truth in legends. Podcast business. As a reminder, the podcast is on a little bit of a narrative hiatus, um, as Luke writes for the bar exam. If you are expecting more of the narrative from Knights of the Old Republic 2, it is coming, but it is coming sometime after the Ides of March. In the meantime, I want to take some episodes to dive into other parts of canon and other Star Wars in general, um, other aspects, other facets. Um, today, I'm going to be talking about two things, one in a little bit and one at some more length. Um, most of today will be about the technology used to wage war in the stars. Um, but before I get to that, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit more about the Force is With Our People, an exhibit of Star Wars art by Native artists. It's at the Museum of Northern Arizona in Flagstaff, Arizona. Um, and the uh, it's there until May 25th. Um, it's an art show. There's not a ton of value in me describing pictures to you here in this audio medium, but um, I do want to highlight um, some aspects of it. One, right, is that the while the art is incredible, um, there's some deeply cool interpretations and adaptations of it. Uh, now that I have seen Boba Fett with um, turquoise bracelets. I don't think I ever can imagine Boba Fett any other way. Um, and one of the big parts of that um, that was really cool there is that there's a documentary um, about the making of uh, Navajo Star Wars, which was the first dub of the film into the Adene language. Um, believe that took place in, they screened it in 2012. Um, it's neat. The documentary is super fascinating about figuring out how to cast it, how to translate it, um, and then how to to share this this story um, sort of back to where it came from. And so for that, I'm going to uh, quote. Um, this is uh, from Manuel, Manuelito Wheeler, who is the director of the Navajo Nation Museum in Window Rock, Arizona. He says, quote, there was another reason I chose Star Wars to dub in Navajo. It's a spiritual reason. Navajo and native spirituality exists and has been documented and studied by ethnographers and anthropologists. One of those anthropologists happened to be a man named Joseph Campbell. He's written about the Navajo creation story, in particular the hero twins. Twins in the role of hero play a significant role among many native nations up and down this continent, end quote. Wheeler then uh, draws the connection between how Lucas uh, filtered Campbell's understanding of myth and hero stories um, into Star Wars and says that it's sort of a reverse engineered native story, and that's part of why it resonates so well with um, native people. Um, there are others who can obviously speak better to this. I'm just someone who I deeply appreciate it and was able to, to go see the exhibit. Um, 
it's great and wonderful. If you can make it to Flagstaff, um, I highly recommend it. I understand Flagstaff is a far, it's as far from me in Albuquerque, and uh, we're as about as close as you can be without being in Phoenix. Um, but it is really cool while we're doing. Um, and to uh, share some of that art, I have a thread on Twitter, which I'll promote and I'll tag into the um, link for this episode on Twitter. So that aside, I want, I'm here to talk about military technology in Star Wars. Um, my day job is all military technology, all of the time. Um, and it's honestly how I sort of stumbled into journalism is talking about multi-technology in Star Wars. Now I get to talk about it in a real wars, which is significantly less whimsical. Um, but if you've been following me online for a while, you may recall um, in July 2012, I was part of the team that launched something called Grand Blog Tarkin. Uh, it was a collective project on strategy and science fiction. Um, we focused a lot, though not exclusively, on Star Wars. And you can still find all that work up at blogtarkin.wordpress.com. Um, I'll probably be pulling some answers to your questions today from that. Um, and we haven't posted since uh, 2017, but you know maybe it'll be active. The site still at least exists. Um, and it was a super fun project. We did a lot of looking at, well, why does this make sense? And what do you have to accept about the universe for a battle in that format to make sense for um for any of this to come clear one of the cooler things we did is uh wired back when wired had danger room r.i.p danger room did a feature on the battle of hoth right the iconic set piece battle that doesn't quite open but certainly uh cements the first act of empire strikes back um which is a very slow ground assault over snow with like slow crawlers while the rebel forces um, escape into space and have there's the ion cannon, there's a shield, there's all this stuff. Um, and so Wired did a little rundown on it and then we did a little rundown on it at Blog Tark and then they uh, were generous enough to invite us to collaborate at Wired too on that. Um, neat things, I, I encourage you to to Google um, that, that sort of thing to poke around um, for it, but... Yeah, so we did a lot, a lot, a lot of thinking about how does military tech actually work? Um, and the first thing, right, which we, we include in caveats in every piece there and which I have to do here, um, everything happens first and foremost because of film. It's the boring answer, um, but I think there's still some value to talking about it, which is the film and the universe of the film um, have to be filmable in a way that is engaging. Um, and Star Wars in particular is bound by the conventions of the fighter pilot movie. Um, it's a genre of film that captured the high stakes in the skies above mostly World War One and World War II, sometimes um, other wars, sometimes later wars. Probably the, if you're thinking of a fighter pilot movie outside that, you're probably thinking of Top Gun, um, which is, really the furthest extent of it and top gun is specifically about teaching jet pilots how to fight with guns um an experience that was relevant above the skies of korea and vietnam um 
and is still a durable part of fighter jet planning. They all still have guns. Sometimes they get bolted on afterwards, as the case of the F-35 or things. Um, apologies for mentioning the F-35 on this podcast. Um, but uh, we really, like, really, the genre works best when um, it's like machine guns and propellers, um, sometimes cannons, but the that kind of plane, right, where... Um, you have the proximity that makes for good cinematic stakes. You have pilots who can't quite see each other's faces, but can at least see each other in cockpits. Um, you want to have dramatic tension because in you're, you're telling a story about people doing things. Um, and it's a lot harder to do that, though not impossible if you're talking about uh, drones and missiles uh, striking targets beyond line of sight. Um, everything is fine, and then there's an explosion and the spaceship is gone, which is probably, um, should humans ever be fighting wars in space and in space space, not just like orbit, um, that's probably the extent of what it'll be, is that missiles will be, be launched and they will reach targets, and then the targets will, um, either have been prepared enough and make it out okay or not, and it will be a, a tragedy, um, as space is the most hostile environment in existence. Uh, but it's so that there are, there are films that play in that space and there are like, you'll see things that build themselves as harder sci-fi or whatnot. And they'll, they'll dive into it. And there's interesting stories to tell there, but it is not the story that Star Wars is telling. They are steering uh, far away from calculating a lot about the, the physics and the balance of a universe a bounds of our universe into that universe. Um, and for cinematic reasons, um, that'll explain a lot of things, but it won't explain everything. Um, and if you want a little outside the universe space, we're going to talk about how uh, Star Trek, right, leans heavily on naval combat instead. That's its big touchstone is uh, movies about ships just blasting each other to pieces. Um, broadsides and torpedoes figuring really as the as the ways, there's no reason for it other than it's cinematically and narratively compelling. Um, and when Star Trek, the recent Star Trek cinematic reboot, uh, was that Star Trek Into Darkness and Star Trek Beyond, they mucked about in technology. Star Trek Beyond features uh, swarming robots and the whole concept of uh, arms races and technology and Star Trek Into Darkness Um has both uh, super long-range uh, guided missiles and also um, ships that need very few people to control. And they feel weird within that universe because they're going outside of broadsides and torpedoes. Um, that's just the nature of the genre. But you're not listening to me talk about what real-life limitations are um, in filming that impact canon. We're going to talk about how things work in canon. Um, and I have some questions uh, generously offered by people on Twitter. Um, it's over 20. I'll try to group some together. Um, so starting with Eric Sofji, who asks, um, can Jedi deflect bullets and shrapnel or resist dirty bombs? Or generally, could they cope with the war tech from our era? Um, so we have seen Jedi resist... Uh, mass projectiles uh, there's a 
fancy term they use in sci-fi to distinguish between um, laser weapons and like physical bullets. But those, right? Like bullets, yes, um, they can do it. We see it, I think, in the Clone Wars. The Clone Wars deals a lot more, um, interestingly, with that tech in all the various worlds. You see a range of weapons. Um, and so they can do that. Uh, they could, I don't know um, if we've seen them deflect shrapnel, but it seems possible. Um, though it seems right, that's that's very much a how does the, are they perceiving an explosion? Can they deal with a thermal detonator? And the, usually they get out of the way. That's the thing you do. I don't know if they could lightsaber deflect it or force it away, but possible. We've seen force users do everything. They've definitely, we've seen them on the Mandalorian, spoilery. Uh, this is a spoiler-rich podcast, but The Mandalorian features a moment where Baby Yoda uh, stops a flamethrower. Um, like, the flame, not not the weapon, the flame of the flamethrower. So, theoretically possible for a Force user to do that. Dirty Bombs is an interesting thing, because Dirty Bombs are... Um, basically, they're a crude weapon approximating the scare factor of a nuclear weapon. It's you put radioactive material on a bomb and you blow it up and then you have radioactive contamination. Um, by definition, dirty bombs don't actually include the nuclear blast, but they can certainly cause uh, all sorts of harm and also lots of panic. Um, I don't... Star Wars does not, in canon deal with at least in cinematic canon that i can recall feel free to tweet at me otherwise um deal with radiation um in any way it could be it's not a meaningful property of that universe which is its whole other thing um it could be right that we are in an era where uh super weapons are so super that the scale of something that devastates a city versus something that devastates a planet doesn't really play into it um so i don't know um i would i would expect that they would actually struggle jedi would struggle against it um especially if they could not perceive it that's the thing um they could perceive things you can shove around all whatever and they could manipulate through the force but the idea that it would be a sort of a toxin in the background or released and then it would be they'd have to deal with an explosion and they have this other thing happening to them uh, could make for a very good story um, other military tech of our era. Um, the, I mean, they deal with a lot of it um, on there, right? We have, uh, there's very few weapons that are in the real world that do not have some kind of analog in Star Wars. I think um, missiles are up there, actually. Like, cruise missiles sort of change a whole lot of how... People have to think about space of how our militaries have to think about what they're defending and what they do. Um, having force users would probably be significantly more effective than any missile defense system will ever be. Um, I remain fundamentally skeptical of those, especially when they are tasked with intercepting nuclear things. That's a whole other thing. You can find me talking about not Star Wars about that. Um, but, uh, but really, like, missiles are the thing, right? Like, weapons that can... Um, go beyond line of sight. That's the big term, right? You cannot see them physically or you can't even see them like it's miles and miles and miles away. Um, and there's not a lot of that. Star Wars sticks pretty clearly to... Um, there's a lot of tech that feels very futuristic and obviously 
they are traveling through space. But there's a lot that feels very bound to um, what you would fit in the World War II movie, where there would be cannons that would be long, um, but you would still be able to see them distantly on the horizon, right? When you have your dive bombers coming in or your your, uh, anti-ship planes dropping torpedoes, they're still close enough that you have visual confirmation. The biggest thing of this, right, is that when we're looking at the trench run in A New Hope and in various other places, or even like the Millennium Falcon, right, the turret it has, those are World War II defenses. Um, fixed defenses of guns blasting at planes, extremely World War II. Um, sometimes exist still now, but planes operate at distances that are just very different um, than we see there. So I don't know how the Jedi would handle it. Um, would handle the whole missile heavy and uh, and long range of modern warfare. Um, it's very possible they would be extremely poorly at it, but if they have the kind of extra sense from the Force, then, then maybe it would be a thing they would handle. Um, and I'm sure uh, Luke, with a deeper knowledge of how these things have played out in the expanded universe, will have some ideas there. All right. Seth Trigger asks, who made the Sith knife? And that's a really good question. Um, I have no idea. Um, I think the only way you can really, like they, they have to be someone who has visited the planet where the Death Star is sunk, the Death Star throne room is sunk into. It's a deeply deeply weird and unsatisfying thing there could be a story told about it that would make it interesting i i cannot imagine what it would take to do that um jesse burr asks how the first order thought it could possibly man a fleet of star destroyers with just kidnapped children from other planets and honestly this is my one of my favorite plot threads that uh could have been set up and led to deeply compelling cinema um, in The Rise of Skywalker and just a very interesting version of the universe um, that is uh, underexplored, at least. I think Jonna does a really good job of talking about what it means to have been um, abducted and raised and then desert um, from the First Order. But... Um, the First Order doesn't... is. Uh, not without precedent in doing this. Um, there are countless, and not countless, but there's several times in history where ruling regimes have looked to um, sort of personally owned armies of people sometimes taken as children as a way to guarantee their own uh, survival. Um, one of the, perhaps the most iconic example of this would be the Janissaries of the uh, Ottoman Turks. Um, but there are others, the Mamluks um, in Egypt were a similar society, and uh, there's ranges of it. But what those systems would do, right, is you would have, um, and they work, uh, they worked at times where the state was powerful enough to conscript children, but not necessarily omnipresent enough to... Um, get people on board without coercion. Obviously, there's a lot. Um, militaries have, for as long as they've been militaries, coerced, not always. There have been ways to coerce people into military service. 
it is not the default way. It is certainly not the default way now, but like conscription or mandatory service is a big thing. But the raise from children in particular to serve and then sort of have a like permanent cast of uh, soldiers raised into it um, dates back to the, the Ottomans did it, the Mamluks did it. They were uh, usually people acquired first as slaves and then later um, they would be, it would be one of the ways that taxes or, or um, payment into the government could be collected. Families could um, have to give up a child to do so. Um, and then what would happen, right, is that the military would be self-perpetuating and it would have some degree of autonomy. It's this very powerful institution um, unto itself. It becomes a sort of uh, self-perpetuating system. Um, and so on the one hand, the regime has it and then has its means of doing it, but it also has to then deal with all these children who it has uh, taken and brought together and trained and armed um, for their whole lives as they are people and as they have the uh, interests of their own developed in connection with each other. Um, I think in Star Wars, it'd be really interesting if they took the way that, uh, that this was a new practice because we've seen, um, we don't get a ton on how the Empire recruits um, in between, we get a lot in, we get more on recruitment in the sequel and the prequel trilogies. Um, and the prequel trilogy makes it a clearly, literally bred from nothing clone army. And they talk about um, there's degeneration programmed in, the clones age faster. Um, one of the favorite, I think it's canon or it's been hinted at being canon Easter eggs is that the very old rebel who uh, storms the Death Star shield generator in Return of the Jedi is Rex from the Clone Wars um, and sort of living a very accelerated life. But that works to establish the army, but then what happens next? Um, and it's assumed that it's normal recruitment or conscription. Um, and then what happens by the time the First Order gets around it is you, is they're pulling in children from the worlds they can reach and one reason to do that right is um it's you just keep them away and then you can train them into your own things one reason to not do that is it goes very poorly um i mean it works out for a lot but they keep have but they have desertions it's a it's a recurring problem and it uh if the army is always on the move which the first order appears to be then they don't particularly have to worry about popular backlash but uh if nothing else uh the rise of skywalker ends with a example of deeply uh, felt popular backlash. Um, and then last thing I want to say on this, right? Um, the First Order also has precedent in doing this because the Jedi would, maybe kidnapped is not quite the right word for how the Jedi would do it, but the Jedi would also take children and then raise them, right? The When Anakin is too old, he is nine. Um, Right, like the or when we see younglings, they are uh, maybe kindergarten age or maybe maybe second grade. Right, it's in that space. It's not super old. These are people being raised for a life for a lifetime profession, um, and so maybe that's where the first order gets it. Okay. David Obuchowski asks about Hux and also Hux and Hux too. Um, I think Hux is a deeply interesting figure who um, we could have seen more with. Maybe we will see more with. I think the idea of a um, imperial 
a leader who is interested in building power. Um, and I'm going to use uh, secular power is maybe the wrong word, but building the, the power of the military outside of the force um, is interesting. I think it's what made Tarkin also super compelling um, as a villain is that there's all this force stuff happening and Tarkin is basically uninterested in any of it. Um, and more interested in how you establish the thing. Um, I think Hux as Tarkin fanboy um, is a pretty compelling theory. And I think the notion um, that when we get to Hux's ultimate betrayal of the First Order, um, which specifically of Kylo Ren, um, I think is compelling as the idea that there is a there is a military bureaucracy that is uh, deeply uninterested in the force um, and wants to rule the uh, more conventional way and not have to deal with all these people and their weird things. Um, and I think Hux goes into that. Mark Rydell um, asks, why is there so much poverty throughout the Republic and subsequent empire? Um, and Eric Whitmore, these are pretty related, so I'll ask, answer more than once, asks about the uh, the different regimes and political upheaval on the economies of planets throughout the galaxy. Um, we see equalities that exist, but there are also many uh, planets that appear to be thriving and some at full employment. Um, this is a great opportunity to plug the episode I did uh, we did two weeks ago with Matt Ford. Um, this is apparently dealt with in some of the newer novels. They go into, into some space in this and they fill in the gaps between... Um, Return of the Jedi and Force Awakens, but it's a weird. Star Wars exists in a weird setting because we have the trappings of the Republic and the, and uh, very literally, I don't mean in a pejorative, more pejorative than the term itself says, but it is a it is the the old Republic is a bourgeois democracy. It is a bureaucracy where the interests are dealt with through deliberation. It's a democracy where they're they're dealt with through deliberation and also like not just like people, right? People are there as uh, but planets, right? Like that's the territorial units get representation, but so do moneyed interests, right? We see that the trade federation has seats and there are other corporations and entities that uh, control some aspect of society, and they are all there to hash out their uh, differences and gather. Um, but when we see life outside of Coruscant, and even to some extent in places on Coruscant, what we see of life is that people are existing um, on the margins doing transport, and especially in the Imperial era, they are smuggling. Um, we see that the most people, most places are living um, in subsistence. And if they are working at something more than subsistence, they are often contracted in some way to the military state. Um, and so I like to think of it, right, that the the empire is sort of, um, it's a totalitizing, it's a, it's not quite an unseen regime, right? That's the, it's not quite that the whole system, that there's this old decaying system and then they just put a new head on top of it. But what you have is really, you have a world where whatever the resources have been, um, and this is a world with, uh, as we know in canon, thousands of years of space travel and interconnectedness. Um, and trade 
but the it seems really that a lot of it goes down to choke points, which is a weird thing when planets can seemingly take off from anywhere and fly anywhere. Um, when you have ships that can go from planet to planet, um, as long as they get a certain distance away, it's weird to make it about choke points and economic controls. And that's hardly the whole of it. I think a lot of it is really just that subsistence life is the easiest way um but you know it's not it's not deeply explored um it's also a universe where like the default mode of being right is is peasant um is surf is some kind of subsistence we don't get a ton in it now matt ford um as he explained in that episode goes in some great detail about the lengths to which um imperial consolidation of the republic wiped out the companies that had been intermediaries um the, instead of the trade federation you just have imperial customs and on that side of things um the reason we see a, a so many smugglers right or the reason that is justified after to give us so many smugglers is that the empire uh extracts a lot of its wealth from taxing trade between planets that's really where the empire sits it sits um it has a presence on planets but imperial control really sits between them um why does that leave some planets worse off than others? Why does that leave a ton of people in deep poverty? It's hard to say other than it's a convenient for the Empire. The Empire does not appear to have any vested interest in, uh, in legitimacy through good works. The legitimacy the Empire brings is the end of a war. And if you fall in line, then the violence of the state will probably pass you by. Um, that's that's it it's it's a it's purely an iron fist thing we don't really get a lot of like why aren't people doing more and when you have uh, spaceships that can blow up most other spaceships and when you have weapons that can devastate things and when you have the ability to launch punitive raids anywhere you want in the world then maybe you don't have to worry so much about legitimacy unless of course, you also have a recurring problem of thermal exhaust ports and uh, small fighters. But um, it's certainly a space Star Wars could explore more. The universe does not have to be that unpleasant for everybody. And even the planets that are well off, we should see an understanding of why are they like that. Um, Josh asks about the military acquisition system of the Empire. Um, what we see in canon is not a ton and especially in film canon uh, we do see though that there is a it, it it is a totalitizing influence it the assumption really is that what was independent becomes um nationalized is the wrong word because the scale is so small and socialized implies a far more beneficial and public use but what happens right is that the empire uh mucking about by the corporate intermediaries of the universe leads to a whole swath of problems and then we see a galactic civil war and the empire just takes over those roles um and it probably does it in a way where it becomes the sole buyer it probably doesn't do it in the way where it is uh, you're an imperial employee if you are working for this specific company but it is a lot like if you are a contractor whose uh, product is solely consumed by the pentagon then the 
to the extent that there is a market, there is a market, a small market that is uh, pretty well, con not controlled, it's more, but certainly well contained, maybe by the extent of what the government will ask you. Um, and that's what I know of that. I know that the, the uh, all the ships have like their own contractor names and there's lore books and a plenty to go into more. Um, but that's what I can say there. All right. Spectre177 asks about droid rights. Spectre177 says droid rights. And Dave O'Brien asks, why do they rely on the labor of so many organic beings, slavery or otherwise, for menial labor and grunt work when automation and AI are apparently effective and widely available? Are there weird economic incentives? Is it a forced midichlorian related religious reasons? Was there a Butlerian jihad type backlash? Great questions and framing. Um, Butlerian jihad is uh, the event referenced in the good Dune books and then explained in the bad Dune books. Um, where the people just rose up against the machines that had come to take some major place in their lives. Or the machines rose up and then there was a backlash against them. It's a doing is its own mess. Um, but why not? And one of the things, right, that deeply struggles is we have characters who learn, grow, change, and are sapient. Um, but also have off switches, which is a super weird thing in fiction. And uh, Star Wars lightly skips past it in almost every sense. Um, the We see it, right? To the extent we see droid rights, we see it in the context of um, the revolt on Castle, where droids revolt as well as uh, organic beings kept there. And that just is, I think, to emphasize that Castle is a real shitty place to work. No one wants to be the spice miner there. Um But why the why of um and the why right is that they're i mean it's a convenient narrative device but it's also um in the vastness of the galaxy there's a deep well of cruelty and it builds on archaic human systems uh the old republic has slavery because old democracies in the U.S., despite form, I mean, the old republic formally outlaws, but slavery is present during because that is the structure of a narrative. It's not; it could be interrogated further and should be, and is well worth doing by far more qualified people than myself. And it's also worth looking at the simultaneous: do droids count? What do droids count as as a sapient um, kind of being that is also manufactured and then? Um, can exist outside bodies and uploaded memory and can be wiped um, and erased and controlled by uh, organic life. It's deeply weird. Um, it certainly complicates a whole lot. Uh, the more you think about Qui-Gon Jinn not also arguing for Shmi in the narrow sense or even um, or broadly just quietly drifting through Tatooine and not doing uh, anything to up and a planet ruled by gangsters where uh, people are bought and sold is uh, strong marks against the legitimacy of the Old Republic and the Jedi. Um, there's not great answers for why other than it happened in human history and is a way to show that things are bad. 
Um, Robert Farley asks about the uh, intellectual property protection in the late Republic and First Empire um, and stuff about like right of repair and trade secrets. Um, and so one of the things that uh, in the encompassing view where the empire monopolizes um, most production of most meaningful things, what it can control it does, um, is that the empire then becomes sort of the one-stop shop. You have to go through the empire for everything else. Um, and we've seen a range of approaches to intellectual property in other um, other regimes on Earth. One of the neat things about why there are so many versions of Tetris is because the game was developed um, under Soviet copyright law. It is public domain. That was just part of how that copyright was structured. Um, a neat bit of real world trivia. But like in the Empire, it would be very like not that we you know hardly see games other than that one game of chess they play all the time. Um, but you could imagine right that if this had been a game developed under the imperial rules or if the empire even just assumed rights to it which why not they're assuming rights to all the things then you would have to route through the empire at everything because um one of the noted differences between the old republic and the galactic empire is that the galactic empire uh has tighter controls on trade and also has big expenses um well, there's a question later about uh, the cost of like Death Star. Um, we'll get to that. But it's the idea that to sustain the kind of control that stops uh, separatist planets and rebellions, the Empire has to extract it from people somehow. And so my rough read on how they would handle intellectual property protection is that you, it routes through the Empire and they sit on it extracting fees. Uh Bashi Bazooks asks about civil-military relations in Star Wars. Um, and this is something we talk about in, in some previous episodes a little bit, but one of the, I think, neat and durable features is that the, what, like, what is the role of the Senate um, until in between the, uh, in between Order 66, which functionally ends the Jedi, and between the abolition of the Senate and A New Hope? That's a 19-year span um, why are there still senators kept in power? And uh, as Matt Ford discussed, and which is in the um, the novels published, some of the novels published to try and fill in gaps, is that the Senate existed as a as the buffer, as the way that if people were agitated, they would still go to the senators, and the senators would be able to do something within the empire, and you know give them maybe a a soft no um, on why they can't actually do the thing they want, why the thing they want is out of reach. But, but that's like, that's really the, when the uh, Senate is abolished, the, that's the end of any civilian government in the empire. Um, and I think one of the things too that's, that we see derived from the uh, the army being born of clones is that the military sees itself as largely separate from the people it serves. It's not that people are recruited into the Republic military and then the Imperial Army and then go um, 
fighting all their various wars, thinking that they are in service of themselves um, or that they are in service of something that is protecting their people. They are a entity um, unto themselves. They may think broadly, right, that the, the, the clones know broadly they exist to serve the Republic. Um, and we don't get a ton about what the motive is for uh, later stormtroopers or first people in the First Order. Um, they wipe it away in First Order saying, oh, it's brainwashing and training, which, sure. But in every sense of it, that military is a imposed on the public thing. There's no great interaction between them. Um, it's just, and so the avenues through which we could see civil interaction, um, Clone Wars dives into the sum. We see it on specific planets. We often see it, the Clone Wars loves to frame it as a planet inviting in either the Republic or the Separatists. And then you see how a planet wrestles with its own local security forces and a new um, military backer being brought in and then whatever problem it has there. But so there's a lot in there. Which is good because Clone Wars is like a series of um, insurgency. And what I've seen in Rebels uh, touches upon it. But there's really not like a lot on it. Uh, one second. Comcast Delinda-esque asks about foreign policy in a unitary hegemon. Um, which, you know, definitely no subtle allusions to the world today. Um, one of the things about the that makes, I think, Star Wars particularly interesting as a setting is it's not wars between, it's wars within. Even the Galactic Civil War, the Separatists, the Clone Wars, right? That one, the Clone Wars, feels like a war between, but really, um, that is planets that had shared a overarching government breaking away um, and fighting about it that way. The core Galactic Civil War, the Rebellion versus the Empire that we see in the original trilogy, that is a war within a thing, uh, within a state. Um, and it's one of the weirder parts of the sequel trilogy where we have a war that sort of exists outside of it. We have a free-range military that doesn't seem to have um, a ton of established bases of operation. It's a it's a fleet with a planet that is a um, that is a Death Star, but it's not. But it's not like these planets together banded together and formed the First Order. It's sort of a military came in and roamed around extracting. Um, so one that one of the side effects of that way right, is that when there is a government in Star Wars, be it the Old Republic, the empire or the new republic it is basically the only government um and it is playing for all of it against what threats may exist um the old republic had a very poor grasp of what its actual threat was um the policy it was trying to do was trying to mitigate was trying to calm tensions between various uh various factions within it um it, is uh, hard to hold it together when you have multiple independent militaries, um, which is often when you see a civil war where there are like provincial or um, you, or state militias say, um, it's super hard to get them to all disarm unless you have them all brought into a singular entity. 
Um, and the Empire solves that problem by making it so no one else can really have anything else. The Empire becomes the whole of force. Um, and then uh, <laughs> its foreign policy then becomes one of um, punishment and extraction when there's any deviation from the order it has built for itself. And the New Republic, uh, what we know is that it apparently had a fleet. Um, we we have that mentioned and it had plants in the government and it is all wiped off. And there is a proxy army that sits outside of its control um, that is fighting the entity that ends up destroying Hosni and Prime. Of course not, no, Hosni and Prime. That's all weird. Um, but it's tricky to tell a story about it. And one of the things I think that is fascinating is that as Star Wars tells that story, um, Earth itself has moved towards a unitary hegemon. Who knows how long that will last, but it's a very interesting bend of what does it mean to be the most powerful? What does it mean to be so powerful that the existence of other power, even regional power, is seen as an inherent destabilizing threat? Um, big question. Star Wars explores it lightly. Um, Shruggy, it's just it's just the Shruggy uh, symbol, asks about the, pol the popular legitimacy of the Jedi Order in the late Republican era, and Chris asks about the ease with which the Jedi accepted command of clone soldiers and children as seen in the Clone Wars show. Uh, good questions. The Jedi... Uh, and I hope this is something I really want to see more out of the High Republic era. Um, the Old Republic, Knights of the Old Republic, as we have been diving in here, does a lot about how Jedi commanding armies isn't super new. Um, that they are uniquely suited, they are very powerful, um, and the Republic has a great need of that. And so having Jedi as a force multiplier is a cool and good thing for them. Um, I'm very curious to see what the High Republic, the announced High Republic series, does in playing in that space. Because um, by the time we get to uh, Phantom Menace and the Clone Wars and the prequels and all that, that the Jedi are so eager to go to war against what they feel to be the existential threat suggests um, a lot at odds with the teachings we receive about Jedi in the original trilogy. Um in the light of the full trilogy, as written as out of sequence as it was, it's possible that the version of the Jedi that Yoda and Obi-Wan tell Luke about never existed. Um, it's possible that the more con contemplative, pacifistic, um, in the Force rather than commanding the Force vision is an, an ancient tradition that got warped by proximity to power. Um, and it's possible that it was the way and that it was a recent deviation from a different era where the Jedi, rather than taking on the burden of war, um, became uh, the architects of and overseers of war. Um, it, it, I mean, it calls into question a lot. Um, and, uh, and I think we touched upon the child soldier stuff earlier when talking about... The first order. All right. 
Graham Lampa asks about the uh, potential profitability of galactic defense contractors such as Incom, Sindar Fleet Systems, Quad Drive Yards, and the degree to which The Last Jedi adequately unpacks the issue of war profiteering. Um, there's another question there about the uh, specific kind of rules you have to do for contracting with the Pentagon. Uh, Dunn's numbers, accounts in SAM, the military industrial world is a uh, fun and definitely not archaic universe. So, um, The Last Jedi addresses it the most we see of anything in the cinematic canon, which is good. It's interesting. Um, it doesn't address a ton about where resources come from. We do not know anything about the First Order's income other than we assume it's uh, pillage and plunder from the World that surveys. We do not know anything about um, the resistance's income other than it is funded discreetly and outside the Republic officially. Um, which means we don't really know a ton about where the contractors are, what they build, how they build them, and for who. Um, it's possible that there are worlds that remain neutral or companies that remain neutral under the condition that they sell to both or either um we have certainly seen uh whole examples on this earth of countries buying weapons and then using them against the makers of those weapons um there are very interesting things going on right now about who gets to sell who air defenses in the middle east and what aircraft they will defend against um it is as you might imagine on earth somewhat messy um, about all that but I think one of the things and you can't really get deep into you can't get deeper into contractors you can you can make an allusion to profiteers but you can't get deeper into contractors without having any idea of what the systems of governance look like and the sequel trilogy is um, extremely light on that not that I think people were uh screaming for a star wars movie that gave them insight into the life of the contractors though um obviously there is some audience for that um but i i think we to the extent that it has been covered in cinematic canon i think the last jedi does it very well all right Timothy Joy asks, why didn't the Rebels use mines on gestures vaguely at literally all the planets on which they were on the defensive? And that's a great question. Um, we see mines. Um, we see them in uh, we see them in Legends canon. There's a whole bunch of minefield stuff in Knights of the Old Republic. Um, they are an interesting thing to use in fiction and a nightmarish thing to use in real life. I think the reason that we don't see them, the boring reason that we don't see them in, um, see them in use by the rebels, um, is uh, that they're deeply unpopular and uh, cinematically um, not terribly compelling. The more interesting reason, um, I think, is that explosives generally have a very secondary role in most of. How we fight, it's directed energy weapons, which are all blasters and lasers almost almost all the time. Um, and then when there are explosives, right, they're thermal detonators. And, like, grenades have a bigger role in modern warfare. And even in the tropes that they borrow from in 
real life, right? World War II saw far more minefields and grenades than we see in Star Wars. Um, the Rebels totally should have. It would be very... I think you could make interesting times to do it. I think there are episodes of that show and definitely of the Clone Wars where landmines feature. But, um, yeah, that's... I mean, for... And the other, the other reason, I guess, the other reasonable canon answer you can come to um, is that putting minefields out is a very... It's a temporary defensive mechanism and in an in a universe where there are weapons powerful enough to just blow up most defensive emplacements from space right we don't see star destroyers do a ton of star destroying but we know they can do orbital bombardment they can they can hit planets and it's not the same as the death star ones or the various death star-esque variants that blow up a whole bunch of stuff but um they can still cause significant damage and I think the ubiquity of air support and air transport is the other thing um, that makes it tricky. If you can just fly around the minefield, then the minefield becomes a cage and not um, a defensive tool. Um, Hobby uh, Goyle asks about land warfare. Why is the juggernaut barely maneuverable? Do walkers exist? Because that's the most adaptable to any environment. So as someone who just spent um, really just a day, but it was a long day and I had to travel for it, watching robots for DARPA go um, explore underground spaces, um, walkers are super good at a lot of things that... Um, at moving in ways that humans move. It's a great thing to put on screen um, or to go in spaces where humans can go. Um, I like to think that they are popular in Star Wars because um, you have to come up with a reason for the legs. Um, because if there's hovering vehicles, then why shouldn't everything hover? And I like to think that the walkers are there because it gives a um, more stability. That's a kind of anchor um, that it makes it so when they are firing weapons, they are held in place. Um it might also be because, like, as much as Star Wars disregards physics, maybe it's a good way to carry that weight and you don't want to imagine burning fuel on all these repulsor engines or whatever. Um, I think the Juggernaut is barely maneuverable because the kind of point of a Juggernaut is that you have something be super huge and it just batters its way through whatever that's in front of it. Um, they, It's a name that lends itself to being maneuvered around. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, the, the big Star Wars land innovations, right, are these slow walkers um, and their, their speeders. Um, and I think one of the moments, I know we talked about it on our Mandalorian episode, but the Mandalorian episode with the ATST, I think that's the best example of showcasing why a small walker might be incredibly useful. And, like, it's got the flaws of being unstable net, but it's armored, it's got a commanding presence. If you're not worried about being attacked from the air, which often in those circumstances they are not um, that we that we see them used that um, there's not an assumption of a like of fighters flying above it. Then the idea of something super tall and uh, imposing um, and that can cover a range of rough terrain is a very cool thing and a 
weapon that if the Empire has um, all of the resources of the galaxy as a base, you might want to expend some resources on. All right. Eric Gomez asks, why can they develop hyperspace travel but can't make a standoff weapon? Um, and I wish there was a good in-canon answer for this. Um, I think it's because it's boring. I think it's because missiles are super... And there are ways to tell compelling stories about missiles. Or not about missiles. I'm, but there's ways to tell compelling stories with missiles. And I don't think Star Wars is interested in those. I think the tropes and the conventions are really... This is one that really is defined by what works um, in the movie. But for the canon explanation, I think... Um, it can be why uh, it, you can put it to the skepticism of droids that when there are droids doing navigation, there are always organic forms or not always, but often organic forms guiding them or overseeing them. It can be because missiles themselves are just not super big. Um, it can be because the ability to of traveling, of jumping from hyperspace to hyperspace means that combat either takes place in visual range or not at all. Um, Star Wars is pretty good with the, like the Death Stars being the exception. Um, Star Wars is pretty good at putting the fights as things that would all be within range, within visual range of the naked eye. Um, and I think they just don't. And one of the ways they do that is we see that that's usually the distance a ship has to get before it can do hyperspace jump. That's a cinematic language thing, but I think it can work really well in there. Great. Stowe asks about calculating the cost of the Death Star in terms of the number of advanced TIE fighters that are equivalent. I do not have those numbers. I do want to point you to the uh, to Citizen Tarkin. They post written back in the Halcyon days of 2013 at Blog Tarkin, um, which is a response. The White House had a, there's a petition. I, it was deeply strange. There was a petition for the White House to get them to build the Death Star and then the Obama administration responded to it. Um, Death Stars are super expensive. Um, there's a, the Centums blog has a good estimate of the cost of the original Death Star. Um, it, and it starts by going about the mass of iron. Um, it compares it to, to aircraft carriers, but the ma mass of iron is, uh, 1.08 times 10 to the 15th tons. Um, it... The cost of the steel alone is uh, 13, using steel prices and steel prices in 2012, it is uh, 13,000 times the world's GDP in 2012. Um, let's see, that's millions, that's billions, that's trillions, that's quadrillions, 852 quadrillion. Um, so, Death Star, extraordinarily expensive, but we also don't have a good sense of the resources um, that have been held and used by the Empire. It's super hard to calculate that. Um, the Empire is bad at transparency. Um, it is deeply bad at transparency. 
I would not have my job if the Empire was a thing. Um, yeah, that's that's what I got on that. I wish I could tell you how much a Death Star costs in terms of advanced TIE Fighters, and maybe someday I will, if I do expect it to be a recurring bit on Twitter until the day I die. Um, Steve Lynch asks... Send all the best Starfighter debate, please. Both A-Wing and B-Wing are acceptable answers. Divergent opinions ask for the history and employment of the B-Wing. Um, you will find significantly more interesting things and depth on the history of the B-Wing at Wikipedia, which I probably should have just pulled anyway. But I think um, the A-Wing and the B-Wing are super compelling. It's one of the neat things, um, even if it is toyetic logic, the need to make something appear as a toy on screen for people to play with b wings are super cool a wings are super cool um but the best starfighter look i have a soft spot for the y wing and the x wing is the undisputably most iconic starfighter made there will be no settling a best starfighter debate um one thing i will say is i like the range of starfighters and i on record, I was saying, I appreciate the existence of gravity bombers in The Last Jedi. I like the expansion of what you can do with fighters. Um, I used to have one of those like subscriptions, like you get like a little like fact card of planes every month, and I put them in a big binder somewhere. Deep, deep into the little variations that make a range of aircraft super compelling. Um, there is no best fighter. All fighters are the best fighters. What is being able to do interesting things with fighters on screen. Um, I love that the B-Wing is a arsenal ship, the A-Wing as a uh, pursuit fighter. Pursuit fighters were a whole thing from like the 30s to the 60s and they don't exist anymore um, because missiles are very good. Uh, turns out um, you don't really need to have... Missiles are good. Nuclear weapons moved from bombers to missiles... There's a whole range of things that ended interesting fighters. We are living um, probably in the dullest age of fighter aircraft since there have been fighter aircraft. A controversial hot take that uh, I I think I stand by. But we're living in a pretty dull age for fighters, um, and I think it's the, sort of the winding down of it. Let all the star fighters in Star Wars be good. They are far more interesting than what we get to see today. Jeff Rothenberg asks about integrating archaic and modern weapons or unit types like lightsabers and blaster rifles or Jedi Knights and clone troopers. Um, and to me, that's part of the magic of Star Wars is the notion that you can have such an archaic weapon, but in such a fantastical way work with it. Um, I remember playing like in the Star Wars Battlegrounds game, the really uh, were huffly ported over... Um, Age of Empires 2 clone for Star Wars. And it was super neat to basically have um, mass fire with blasters and then also throw uh, Jedi initiates into the mix to just tear it up. Um, it's very visually compelling. It's also really interesting because a lot, because Star Wars focuses so much on close in tactics, um, they're really like rifles themselves as weapons go are pretty short range. It's a lot of carbines and pistols uh, and short things. Uh, 
it's neat. It's good. I think it's a durable trope of Star Wars, and I uh, hope to see it continue always. Will Stokes asks why the Empire does not selectively adapt some separatist battle droid technology. Uh, someone on Twitter, my apologies for forgetting your name at this moment, responded with a pretty good answer, which I'm uh, going to try my best to adapt here, which is the right. The separatist war led to a whole lot of trauma we see right the when we when the mandalorian himself is having his his flashbacks to the rough moment in his childhood when his parents hid him and then when he was saved by mandalorians it is a droid army that is doing that violence um so in one universe it would make sense that the empire wouldn't do separatist battle droids because they have been seen as the enemy and because they've traumatized the populace but also the empire is fundamentally uh uninterested in the in the well-being of people within it is interested in docility uh, more than that um, and I think the reason we don't see more with battle droids I think is just that they lost more than they were traumatic for people to see them patrolling around it's that they lost and why would the empire deck itself in the armor of things when we see them incorporate droid technology we probably see it incorporated in other more familiar more workaday droids or in machines that are guided by humans um if i'm totally wrong on this though please let me know i'm always happy to do to share something far more interesting on here someone who asked to be addressed as fiscally responsible in coruscant um asks is space supremacy even possible in the era of the empire and i would say yes um supremacy Yes, but uh, uncontested space, absolutely not. The way that we see the ships work in Star Wars is there's sort of an envelope around every planet where in order to engage with that planet, ships have to appear, and that's where your space battles take place. And then once you've reached a certain distance, um, ships can blast away through hyperspace provided all these things, or they can do all sorts of maneuver beyond that. But the nature of that means that the only way to have total... Um, exclusive control of space would be to basically have weapons with range over every part of every planet which the universe is vast and full of resources but at least it puts a constraint in that you cannot do that um but you can still have supremacy right like fleets if you're trying to contest a fleet then you can contest it with a fleet and it's easy for the empire to bring to bear more force than anyone else at any time um which is why there's so much smuggling and gun running and evasion around it it uh very good cat and mousey tropes um so is it possible yes but it'll take far more than a 355 ship space navy andrew mullet asks about interdictor cruisers and gravity wells in the old expanded universe and this i was thoughtful enough to have already pulled up um the old expanded universe had a system called had ships called interdictor cruisers we talked about them when we've talked about thrawn they're neat and weird they have big bulbs on them um which are gravity wells they are i'm quoting wikipedia here uh the gravity well they had the technology to generate a gravity well which had the capability to pull vessels out of hyperspace as well as preventing them from entering it 
it's super cool. I think it's a really good way to tell stories. I think it's a really good technology that if your conceit is that ships can travel through hyperspace, then having a special way to pull them out is absolutely something an empire would do if its main concerns are fleeing targets and smuggling. Um, they're great. I don't know how much of New Canon has picked that up. I would love to see Interdictor Cruisers picked up again. All right, Twitter user Horses asks about Death Sticks guy. His name is uh, Elon Sleesbaganow. Again, Elon Sleesbaganow. And if you watch the um, the episodes of Blank Check podcast where they talk about Attack of the Clones, you will see a ton about Death Sticks guy. It's deeply funny. Um, his military utility is non-existent. Kevin H. Bell asks, why is the time it takes to go to places in hyperspace so inconsistent? And how does hyperspace lane mapping work? And for that matter, what is a hyperspace lane? We talk about this some in the early episodes where we talk about how you can do uh, interstellar travel and how there was a great technological leap when you no longer had to use gates and lanes. Um, I like to think of it as there were paths that were clearly carved out. There were lanes. There were special ways where they knew that you could slip into a sort of fast stream. Consider like the jet stream in the Earth, but for spaceships and also you're invisible in it. Uh, it works because it's so cool and it's the only way you can tell a story in space without getting bogged down in that none of this would actually work the way we want it to work. Uh, but... That's the boring answer. I think it's really neat to have an idea that an ancient race, a uh, spacefaring race, seeded the whole universe with shortcuts between planets and then people have gradually rediscovered them. And first they discovered the existence of networks the way that humans discovered traveling from crossing continents and reaching deep into them by going up rivers. And then later they discovered that it was, you could get there, get from anywhere to anywhere. Um, and like the way that humans figured out you could travel through air. Um, it's super neat. I wish I had more on why the canon explanation for any of it is. Who knows, maybe someday we will have a show with an engineer and they get to uh, babble about it. Neocon Modit asks about the hypothetical course of the war beyond the film protagonists between episode seven and nine, which the film themselves gives almost no clue to. Um, I too, Neocon Modit, have not read any of the new canon novels. I don't have answers on that one. Um, I think it's a maddening thing that the we can get the rough arc of the wars in the original and the prequel trilogy. Um, from the actually just from the opening scrolls, but also from what we see happen in there. Um, a fundamental weakness of the sequel trilogy has been situating its interesting characters in a world in relation. We get to see them in planets, we get to see them in relation to each other, but we do not see the systems around which they operate and plan. It's what it is. Um, I wish we had more. And uh, Kate Kaiser asks about how Star Wars is related to fights about war powers. 
Um, and it is in a weird way as World War II fades from memory or becomes just as much a cinematic trope as it is a real um, lived experience. It's barely a lived experience for most people anymore, not none, but barely for any. Um, Star Wars factors super heavily into how the metaphors that political leaders use to talk about preemption um, and war power. And one of the maddening things is to talk about um, the Death Star as at all analogous to any existing weapon of mass destruction or what have you. But it's a thing people do because the idea that something is so big and scary and you would need to do it. Um, it's limited for lots of reasons, but I'm going to talk about the canon ones. There's no... In canon, the rebellion is a insurgency. We know that the battle that takes place before A New Hope, the Battle of Scarif, which we see at the end of Rogue One, that one explicitly addresses um, the rebellion. It's sort of the rebellion's arm debut. We see the rebellion do other things beforehand, but that's when they move from being a covert to an overt military operation. Um and they're the ones doing the preemption. There's no declared state of war because there's also no really other government. There are like regional units and there might be local puppets still up, but everything is overseen by the empire and the empire is such a powerful hegemony um, that the way declaring war works, which itself is a weird sort of tradition and constraint of the past is not really there. Um, Star Wars is a bad metaphor for preemption because it is a constant state of war. It is a bad metaphor for preemption because there are no norms or bounds. There's no possible international community to constrain the actions of another. Um, it's a very cool cinematic universe. It is a very poor way to talk about war powers. Okay. That covers, um, I think, everything. Um, that you all asked on Twitter. If there is more, I will do my best to find on Twitter. There is other stuff um, that pertains to things that are uh, even more distantly connected to what I wanted to talk about in military, military technology. Um, I do not have meaningful thoughts about Raylo. I am sorry, Val uh, and Senna, but I do not have meaningful thoughts about Raylo. I was going to stretch it into some weird drone acronym and like, no, um, that covers this episode. Thank you all for listening to me talk about the weird military technology of Star Wars for, God, an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, thank you all. Um, thank you for listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. You can please rate, comment, and subscribe to FOTOR on SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Photorpod or email us at photorpodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments and we will answer them on the show. We might even do more question shows like this in the future. I had fun and it will be even more fun when there is Luke back to talk with it too. All right. We've got, I think, one more episode of the narrative hiatus lined up. And then the second half of March, we'll be back in the full swing of the narrative. I'm very excited about our plan next episode. Fingers crossed it all works out. Okay. 
I am Atherton KD on Twitter. Regular co-host Luke can be found at Luke is Amazing. And may the force be with you. I have spoken. <laughs>